In fact, champagne for everybody. Courtesy of Billy Ray Valentine. Yeah, it's all about this money, and it's all about this money, but there ain't a damn thing funny. When the rally rips your way, it doesn't happen every day. You gotta have a seat at the table, be ready to play. Can't time the market, doesn't work that way. You gotta know when to go, or if you should stay, along with the trend, or run the other way. It's easy to be wrong, but it's not okay. To miss an opportunity, skip a payday. Keep cool like Kenny Rogers, shake it off like Tay-Tay. Wealth is built over time, you may not see it today. We gotta master the fundamentals, from Z back to A. Whether you're A or 80 get on these tracks to success this train is for all ages this investopedia express welcome back and welcome aboard and be careful on the platforms because the rally trains are running Stocks ran up another week of gains as Treasury yields kept sliding and the mega-cap tech stocks regained their footing. Fed officials tried to curb the enthusiasm as several Fed regional bank presidents and Chair Powell reiterated that raising rates again might still be needed to tame inflation. That threw the brakes on the rally last Thursday, but by Friday, investors shook that off, sending stocks to some of their strongest gains we've seen in months. The Nasdaq had its best day since March and finished the week up 2.4%, while the S&P 500 climbed 1.3%, and the Dow rose 0.8%. That's two weeks in a row of gains for the major averages, and November is just being November. In case you're keeping score, the S&P 500 is up 6.3% since October 27th, and if you've been on the short side of this rally, you might be feeling a little chafe from the brisk November win right about now. According to S3 Partners, shorts who bet against the market are down 6% since the end of October, or more than $52 billion in mark-to-market losses. That seasonality trade slaps both ways, so ignore the calendar at your own risk. While the stock market has bounced back right on schedule, we can't ignore the fact, though, that market breadth has been pretty weak. The mega caps, which include the Magnificent Seven, which are Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Meta, Amazon, NVIDIA, and Tesla, have done most of the heavy lifting yet again. Collectively, they're up about 3% since this rally started, while the equal weight S&P 500 is actually down 0.6%. Small caps, which have been getting kicked around all year, fell another 3% over the past two weeks. That tells us that equity investors don't have a lot of confidence in the overall direction of the global economy and may not believe that the Fed has reached the terminal rate. They want to own stocks, but just the big ones, especially the two biggest ones, Apple and Microsoft. They now represent a combined 14.7% of the S&P 500 by market weight, the highest weighting for any two companies in the index going all the way back to 1980. And that leads us directly into our big three for the week. Number one. Even though market breadth kind of stinks right now, the last couple of weeks have retaught us a lesson in market timing. The S&P 500 is up 14% so far this year, but just eight days in 2023 explain most of the gains. According to Datatrek, there have only been 11 more up days than down days so far this year. 113 up, 102 down. Kind of a seesaw. On those eight days, the market was driven higher by 1.6% or more by either big moves in tech stocks, like Netflix posting strong results in late January, Meta reporting better than expected earnings on April 27th, and Apple reporting strong earnings on May 5th. The other big rallies were either driven by a big drop in treasury yields or a stabilization of the banking sector after all those bank failures last spring. We call those relief rallies, but they are real and they are in large part responsible for the market's overall performance in 2023. 
But if you think you're smart enough to predict how the market would have reacted on those eight days and tried to time your investments, then what are you doing listening to this podcast? You should be on a boat somewhere fanning yourself with a wad of cash. The truth is, nobody's that smart, which is why we need to stay invested and put time in the market instead of trying to time the market. Our pal Bob Pisani from CNBC writes about it in his book, Shut Up and Keep Talking, and he talked about it with us on The Express earlier this year. Citing data from dimensional funds, Bob uses the past 50 years to demonstrate the fallacy of market timing. If you invested $1,000 in the S&P 500 in the year 1970, the year I was born, your total return today would be $138,908. If you missed just the best performing day over the past 52 years, your return would be $124,491, a $14,000 difference in just one day. If you missed the five best days, your return drops to about $90,000. If you missed 15 days, then it drops to $52,000. If you missed the best 25 days, your return drops to $32,000. $2,763. You get it. If you're in this for the long term, you have to show up every day. That's why indexing has become so popular. Shout out to the late, great Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard and the godfather of index investing. Stay the course. Press on regardless. Number two. We're spending ourselves silly yet again. U.S. credit card debt ballooned by $154 billion in the third quarter, according to the New York Fed, hitting a record high of $1.08 trillion. That's the largest jump since the Fed started tracking household debt in 1999. Blame inflation, blame high credit card APRs, which are north of 20%, and blame yourself if you've been overspending and not paying off your monthly bill. Credit card delinquencies are also on the rise, especially among millennials, many of whom are facing the resumption of student loan debt payments in addition to all of those other factors. That is leading to what is known as credit loading, which is when borrowers resort to opening yet another credit card to keep borrowing without paying off their other cards, and that quickly turns into debt stress, which causes anxiety, depression, and other mental health issues. According to the New York Fed, delinquency rates on credit cards, auto loans, and mortgages are now back above pre-pandemic levels. And that's not a good sign as we head into the holiday shopping season, as Americans are expected to spend an average of $900 on gifts and experiences over the next six weeks. And the battle against inflation is far from over. U.S. consumers' long-term inflation expectations increased to the highest level since 2011, according to the Fed. Consumers now expect prices to climb at an annual rate of 3.2% over the next 5 to 10 years. That's up from 3% they thought a month earlier. Remember, the Fed wants inflation in the 2 to 2.5% zone, so we have a mismatch, and that means what we've been saying all along, higher interest rates for longer, and that means credit card balances are probably going to rise from here. And number three, speaking of spending, if you've noticed that you're paying more for coffee lately, you are not half-calfed. Coffee prices are nearing four-month highs as stockpiles of premium coffee beans on the Intercontinental Exchange, the world's largest Arabica exchange, have fallen to their lowest level since 1999. Supplies are not low because there aren't enough beans. Brazil's having a bumper crop this year, and it's the biggest grower on the planet. Supplies are low, according to Bloomberg, because coffee sellers are trying to take advantage of a loophole that is about to close on December 1st. That loophole has allowed sellers to avoid a so-called age penalty meant to discourage growers from storing their beans in warehouses for excessive periods of time, over three months. If those beans weren't sold, growers would simply take their beans out of the warehouse, bring them back in to be reweighed, and then resubmit them to get repriced and sold. The issue with commodities like coffee beans, though, is that they're traded on a futures exchange, and the price of coffee futures, just like oil or steel, is in large part determined by inventories. If the inventories in Arabica warehouses are being artificially manipulated and demand keeps growing, 
Futures will keep rising, and so will spot prices, the final price paid by the retailer who you buy from at your favorite coffee shop. Well, that coffee bean warehousing loophole is closing on December 1st, as we said, so coffee producers will have to keep their beans fresh, or premium as it's known in the industry, and that could translate into an oversupply of coffee beans, which could mean lower prices for your morning cup of joe. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it's all about the spender and where we spend our money. We'll get earnings reports from the big box retailers, including Walmart, Target, Home Depot, and Macy's, among others. Target has already guided its sales forecast lower, and the CEO said recently that customers have gone from cutting back on discretionary items like TVs and clothes to cutting back on how much they spend on staples like groceries. Is that a Target problem or an everyone problem? We'll get a clearer picture of that with the Census Bureau's release of retail sales for October this week, and on Tuesday, we'll get the latest update on consumer prices with the release of the October Consumer Price Index, followed by the Producer Price Index on Wednesday. Consumer prices likely rose just 0.1% last month, according to the Cleveland Fed, after rising 0.4% in September. That should total up to a 3.3% rise from the same period last year, coming down from that 3.7% annual gain we saw in September. Core prices, which exclude volatile food and energy costs are expected to be up 4.2% from October of last year. The housing market will also be in focus with the release of last month's housing starts and the NAHB's housing market index for November. Mortgage rates finally started to crack in the past couple of weeks as yields on the 10-year U.S. Treasury retreated from recent highs. The 30-year fixed mortgage is super sensitive to treasury yields, and that little pullback brought on the biggest increase in mortgage applications and refinancing applications we've seen in over a year. We'll see if that trend continues. And stop me if you've heard this one before, but we could be facing another government shutdown, at least a partial one, that is, if Congress fails to pass a series of spending bills or another temporary resolution by this Friday. No deal means a shutdown of non-essential government offices and the furloughing of those employees and a delay in the issuance of Social Security and Medicare benefits, as well as some veteran services. That is the last thing we need right now. While most people agree that teaching financial literacy in high school is the right thing to do, it's not that easy, not even close, but progress is being made. Today, 23 states require at least one semester of financial education or personal finance curriculum in order to graduate. More than 40 students live in those states, but outside of those states, only one in 10 high school students is taking a personal finance course. That's a big gap. Tim Renzetta has been trying to change that for nearly a decade. He's a San Francisco-based entrepreneur who founded a nonprofit organization in 2014 called Next Gen Personal Finance. It creates curriculum for high school students, it trains teachers, and it's one of the strongest advocates for pushing states to require financial education in order to graduate. And Tim is our very special guest this week on The Express. Welcome, my friend. Good to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Caleb. What inspired you back in 2014 to create NextGen? Well, a lot of people have been trying to do this for a while, but you basically pulled up your own bootstraps and did it. Why? It really started several years before 2014. I volunteered to teach a class, a personal finance class at a high school in East Palo Alto, California called Eastside College Prep. In teaching that course, I saw the impact it had on students. These were all students seeking to be first in their family to go to college. And then I think the ripple effect when I started to get emails from parents interested in investing or talking through their budget or making choices in a 401k plan. When I saw that, I was totally sold, realized I wanted to do something to help change the dynamic in this country. 
Yeah, as I said, most people think we should be doing this. We definitely feel that way at Investopedia. I know how you feel, but you talk to kids, talk to parents across the country. Most people think we need it. So why is it so hard to get schools and states to require them to teach personal finance as a requirement? Why is it so difficult? Yeah, let's start with the popularity of it. We'll do surveys of voters across the country. I think in nine or 10 states that we've done these polls, the lowest number we've ever seen is 78% support. We've seen as high as 85, but doesn't matter what state, rural, urban, red, blue, purple, this is a bipartisan, I like to call it actually a nonpartisan issue. So the good news is the dynamic is changing dramatically in terms of why it's so difficult. We've actually seen in the last two and a half years, the number of states go from eight to 23. And so there's a path towards what we call mission 2030, which is by the year 2030, every high school student in America, when they cross that graduation stage, will have a personal finance course taught so that they can thrive in the future. So again, the good news is I think the dynamic is changing. Why is it changing? I think there's a growing realization that if we don't teach this in schools, Students are going to learn this through social media. And if they don't have a foundational course to be able to critically think about what is good advice versus what is bad advice, I think we're going to be in trouble. And so I think that's a lot of the the impetus we've seen. We've also seen more and more products being marketed to, to young people. And so this just becomes more and more important. So why hasn't it happened? I don't have a long enough history to understand why it hasn't happened, but I can tell you that the dynamic is changing in our conversations with teachers, students, other stakeholders, legislators. We are seeing an appetite to really do more. That's great. And we are on board with you for 2030. Whatever we can do to help, we are going to do. So your curriculum is being used by uh, upwards of 90,000 teachers. You are really reaching a lot of people, but it's taken you a long time to get there. And I know it has not been easy for you and your team, but you keep at it. What should we be teaching these kids in high school today to prepare them for their futures? You have terrific curriculum that has a lot of the personal finance stuff. What do you think they need to be learning? And how do you know that? Yeah. So I think there's what needs to be taught. And then I think how it should be taught. And so I think we take a research basis when we develop curriculum. And what we know is students are a lot more motivated to learn about things that they are close to making decisions on. So let's take probably the most important decision, which is what are you going to do after high school? Is this college or is this career? So let's really spend, if it's college, well, let's make sure we're talking about how to pay for college, how to apply for scholarships, how to do the FAFSA. If it's Career, let's make sure we're talking about interview skills, creating a LinkedIn profile, and really thinking through what the implications are based on the career that you're choosing. But then the other decisions that young people are making or the other experiences they're having that we want to teach include they may have a part time job. They get that pay stub and they wonder why I thought I was going to make 15 bucks an hour, but when I total up 15 multiplied by the number of hours I worked, it doesn't equal the total. So you're going to learn about taxes. Maybe they need to file taxes. They may just be getting the keys to the family car. So they better understand how auto insurance policies work. They may be managing a bank account for the first time. So we have an online bank sim so that they're not having to learn through the school of hard knocks, but they're getting practice. Again, with that first job, that first earnings that they have, boy, there's no better time to get them started down the path of Roth IRAs and really seeing the power of compounding. 
teachers tell us this. This is one of the most fascinating lessons they teach students is when they look at one of those compound interest calculators or compound return calculators. So what happens if you save $100 a month over a long period or $200 a month over a long period of time and earn just the market returns of seven, eight, nine percent and really lights people up because we tend to think linearly and it's really difficult for us to understand kind of exponential growth the last thing i'll say that's really important to teach and it's actually the first unit in our semester course is psychology the psychology of money because there are so many things we know we should do but we don't and really helping young people especially young people understand their own relationship to money and maybe some of the money scripts money stories narratives that play in their heads based on what they've seen in their family and in their community. Yeah, that's the first question I ask uh, high school students when I go in to teach is, what was the last conversation you had about money? And oftentimes it's, we don't have enough, or why do things keep getting more expensive? Or I wish I had enough to buy this thing, but I, I don't, or I have to save. So we get that all the time. But again, there's also that fascination with investing, with compounding, with how to be an owner, not just a consumer that I find kids are getting more and more into. Where does investing fall into this, do you think? Yeah, it's incredibly important. It's really challenging. I, I'm convinced there's a bit of a life cycle of investing for many. So the natural inclination when you get started is this fascination with individual stocks. And, you know, I also know that the fascination with crypto when it was so popular in the 2020, 2021 timeframe, I spoke to Morgan Housel, who wrote The Psychology of Money. He's visited a lot of classrooms. Terrific book. Yeah, I can't recommend that book enough. And he said, every time he goes, there's the constant theme of how do I get rich quick? And yet you and I both know successful investing can sometimes be like watching paint dry. It shouldn't be entertainment. It shouldn't be volatile. It shouldn't be scintillating. It should be boring. And I think that's the hardest lesson for young people to grasp, both because of their limited life experience, but also this belief that it can't be that easy, right? This idea of, oh, if I just invest in index, low-cost diversified index funds over the long run, that that's going to build wealth, it would seem like, no, it's got to be a lot more challenging and difficult than that. So I think that's one of the most challenging topics to teach because of the lack of experience and just because the desire for immediate wealth and the idea that 8, 9, 10% a year compounded may seem interesting to us in our 40s and 50s and 60s who've actually experienced it. But to an 18-year-old, it seems like, why can't I double my money faster? And to your point on social media, they're not getting a lot of that. They're getting a lot of what is rich, not a lot of what is wealthy or what builds wealth over the long term. So I always have that conversation in schools too. What's the difference between being rich and being wealthy? And it really leads down a fascinating path with people because yes, everybody wants to get rich quickly. Everybody sees it happening and naturally we want to be a part of that. So then taming your animal spirits or teaching yourself, it's the marathon, not the sprint so hard. So I mentioned your advocacy efforts. You're one of the organizations that has been pushing financial literacy state by state, literally talking to the legislatures, going to visit them, making the case. Talk to us about how you're doing that and the types of conversations you have when you do that. Yeah. So it was about two and a half years ago, we decided to go. Traditionally, we had focused on grassroots and we had Great success. We being the community of personal finance educators who successfully lobbied at the local level. And so we provided over a million dollars in grants to individual schools when they attained what we call the gold standard, which is every high school student taking at least a one semester course in personal finance. So 
over that time, I want to say there are 180 schools that switched from teaching it as an elective to teaching it as a required course. I'm impatient. And so while that change was dramatic, 180 schools over several years, we wanted to have a larger impact. And so the decision was made, let's kind of look at this on a state-by-state basis. We created an affiliated organization so that we could go and hire advocates in these states because we recognize that in order to be successful, it's exactly what corporations do, which is you have to understand the legislative process. And the good news is we're batting close to 500 in terms of states where we make investments in advocates in getting these bills passed. And I think the reason being there's an education component to this in terms of working with legislators, sharing with them the data that exists within their current state and really the unequal aspect of financial education in terms of where it resides today and where it doesn't. And really the argument being zip code should not be destiny in terms of where this is taught. We also tell them about the solution of when it comes to implementation, because for us, this is not about legislation. This is about successful implementation and knowing that there's a partner out there who can help ensure that when this is implemented, there's both curriculum available as well as professional development at no cost. And so there's also this element of because of the investment that teachers have made in their own training, just to give you some numbers, you know, over the last three, four years, 17,000 teachers have invested over 400,000 hours in professional development with NextGen Personal Finance. So these states aren't starting from zero in terms of having to upskill all of these teachers. They're there. And the great thing is these teachers are so eager to do more. And I know you've spent a lot of time around teachers. We caught up with each other at the Jumpstart National Educator Conference. I think you see that too. Like this is a different course and this is a different set of teachers in terms of the commitment they bring to their students. Yeah. And they want to learn it themselves. A lot of teachers who haven't had experience learning about personal finance, they want to learn about money themselves. So there's the training of the teachers too, that is so important to this. And I know you guys do a lot of that. The appetite's got to be there. So I get this question a lot, and I'm sure you've gotten it in, in the past decade as you've been building this plus, which is, okay, if we're going to teach this, what's coming out of the curriculum? What is this taking the place of? What is your answer to that whenever you get that? Or is that really not the issue that it once was? Yeah. So local control is one of the hallmarks of the American education system. And so I can't be the person to say, what is this bringing personal finance and what change is it going to make? And so we really, what we've seen, our experience has been not to add a course to the high school curriculum, but to look at the existing requirements and say, where does it fit in? Maybe there's an abundance of electives that are available. So we just cut a semester long elective out. So instead of eight credits, now it's seven and a half credits of electives plus personal finance. We've seen other states where it counts. It can count as a math credit or it can count as a social studies credit. It can count as a CTE credit. The most important thing is allowing the folks who know best, which is at the local level, make decisions like that. But our focus is really not adding to the curriculum, but looking at where it fits best within the existing requirements. Right. And as you say, it's a very localized situation here. So you can get states to require it, but then it really comes down oftentimes to the school itself and sometimes to the teachers themselves. But if you have that approval from the state and if you have the requirement, it's going to make things a lot easier. And the work you're doing is so important. Yeah, just to put it in numbers too, I mean, we're talking about roughly 2% of a high school student's experience. So in terms of the disruption that it causes, like let's look at both the small 
amount of time that's going to be spent on this subject and the value and the impact it's going to have on young people's lives. Because I don't think enough emphasis is placed on the ROI of financial education. So we're really excited. We'll have a report out in the next several months to show exactly that. Let's focus less on the cost and let's look at what's the return? What's the return to individuals? Let's return to communities. What's the return to state economies? And we're really excited to be able to show that it's monumental. Yeah, the ROI, as we say, is so big here. And this is a life skill one you'll actually take with you and use. I don't know if I've ever used calculus. I know it's valuable to some people. That said, this is something that you will take. And and you can, what we love about this too, Tim, is that learning about money is the lifelong journey, right? It's not something you learn once, take it in high school and move on. You keep learning about it, but you guys are doing such a fantastic job. I know it has been a hard road, but we appreciate what you're doing with Next Gen Personal Finance. Tim Renzetta, thanks so much for joining The Express. Thanks, Caleb. Great to be with you. Thanks for the work you're doing at Investopedia also. I was with Tim and about 250 educators, financial literacy evangelists, and creators of financial education curriculum and products for high schools just a couple of weeks ago at the Jumpstart Coalition National Educator Conference in Phoenix, Arizona. If you don't know the Jumpstart Coalition and you care about financial literacy for kids, look them up. They are the center of the hub of financial literacy for public schools. And since 1995, the coalition has been bringing together partners to create financial education materials for schools, advocating in states to make personal finance a requirement in high school, and supporting teachers with curriculum and training. Investopedia is a proud national partner of the Jumpstart Coalition, and it has been my honor to serve as our ambassador at these events. I caught up with several public school teachers in Phoenix to talk to them about the challenges of teaching financial education, what's working with the kids, and what they want to learn. Hi, I'm Renee Mercer. I teach at Cab Calloway School of the Arts, and I teach grades 6, 7, and 8. And what do you think is the most important thing they should be learning at that age? I think they need to explore what their relationship is with money. We have different levels, like in terms of what we see as needs and wants, you know, whether we're really spenders and savers. And uh, I've had students that with the lessons I do and the discussions that we have, have like made some transformations. They realized that they were being wasteful, spending money on things they didn't really need. And even though they still did some of that because they're adolescents, they were able to be more mindful and to make some transitions to actually start doing some saving even at that age. Okay, my name is Lisa and I teach at 28th Street in South LA. And what grade do you teach? Uh, I teach elementary. I teach a math class. So the kids uh, range from grades K through 5. Okay. What's the biggest challenge in teaching financial literacy and education to kids in your experience? Yeah. Okay. Well, generally, kids are very interested in money and the trading of goods, right? But I think the biggest challenge for us at the moment is that it, um, it's not a California standard yet. Once it becomes a California standard, then our district will be forced to um, implement the curriculum. So the interest is already there, but we just need the California standards to back it up. Yeah, hopefully yeah. that'll come soon. Yeah. What's the most important thing you think they should be learning, especially at the age that you're teaching them? 
Okay, well, just the understanding of what money means, as you mentioned earlier, but how do we acquire money? How do we use money for trading of goods and bartering? What it means to save and especially to invest. Often we talk about saving, but we don't talk about what to do with that money while it's being saved. We should invest it in something where interest is compounding, which is another concept that kids need to learn. I'm Ed Kissel from Manchester Central High School in Manchester, New Hampshire, and I teach uh, computers and business. What's the biggest challenge you've found in teaching financial literacy and education to students at that age? Getting the districts to understand that it's extremely important. So students you find willing, but the districts are hard to convince? Uh, the districts understand, but it's just the process of getting them to make it happen. What's the most important thing you think students at the age levels you teach should be learning? They really need to know about compounding interest as early as possible. That's it in a nutshell right there. If they start early, it's game over. And most people don't understand that. Time is everything and it's the thing yeah. we don't teach enough of. I agree with you. How in your experience do you think kids learn this the best? Um, I would say with technology type apps, kind of dynamics, almost like the cahoots. The kids seem to really like the cahoots style of learning and interacting. I'm Jennifer Jones and I teach at Sam Rayburn High School. It's a tiny little public school in North Texas and I teach seniors. What's the biggest challenge you found in teaching financial literacy and education to students at that age? I prefer my seniors because they know the world is about to smack them in the face um, and we talk about that but I feel like the biggest challenge is still the, just their lack of uh, money knowledge. They, they know so little. I feel like things that are basic now with uh, checking accounts and being able to mobile deposit and all these things and they still don't have hardly any experience with that and so it's, it's, we're starting from scratch even as seniors I feel like. What do you think is the most important thing they should be learning? The fact that they are going to go out into either the earning world or the spending world. Right. Saving and investing right now. Right. Creating those budgets, not spending every dime you have. We, we talk about that a lot in yeah. class. Is the fact that they don't really touch physical money the way that maybe you and I grew up with it. You think that distances them their relationship with money overall? I think so. I know for me, it does. I have a harder time spending my cash than I do swiping my debit card. But my seniors, some of them are not that way. Some of them feel like uh, spending their cash means that they're not touching what's in the bank. And that was a flip in the last couple of years. The first that I'd heard students say that to me. And it was startling because I, I always would give them uh, tips to use maybe have cash, right? To help you see what you're spending. And that's not as helpful for them. The paper does not seem like it has value. Not anymore, no. They want to keep that balance, that number high on their apps. Fascinating. Yeah. What tools have you found to be most effective or resources in teaching kids financial education and literacy? I use the NGPF curriculum a lot. I have several different simulations that I use and those work really well. Uh, we're doing some investing. We're fixing to buy houses. They have budgets that they have to keep up with where they you know, revisit it every day. And um, I charge them money for like bathroom passes and things like that, you know. So we try to give money more value, things that are important to them, but yeah. I don't You're know. not playing around in Mrs. Jones' class. No, no. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much for what you do and for taking the time for this. I appreciate it. Absolutely, you. thank you.
It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Carrie Harold, a teacher I met at the Jumpstart Coalition's National Educator Conference last weekend in Phoenix, Arizona. Carrie suggests dollar cost averaging, and we absolutely love that term because it is one of the bedrocks of successful long-term investing. We always say to keep buying, especially if you have time on your side. And while that is always true, dollar cost averaging helps you own the stocks, funds, or ETFs in your portfolio at relatively lower prices. According to our favorite website, dollar cost averaging is the practice of systematically investing equal amounts of money at regular intervals, regardless of the price of the security. It can reduce the overall impact of price volatility and lower the average cost per share. By buying regularly in up and down markets, investors buy more shares at lower prices and fewer shares at higher prices, which helps to prevent a poorly timed lump sum investment at a potentially higher price. It removes the pitfalls of market timing, which we talked about earlier, and it ensures that you're already in the market and ready to buy when events send prices higher. Finally, it takes the emotion out of your investing and prevents you from potentially damaging your portfolio's returns. Great suggestion, Carrie. Make sure you're taking advantage of dollar cost averaging to improve your overall returns over the long run. Thanks for joining us this week, as always, and special thanks to all the great teachers we met at the Jumpstart Coalition for National Educators Conference last weekend. Those folks are doing the hard work of teaching financial literacy to their students and really changing their lives. A lot of these teachers are also learning about their own personal finances for the first time, too. So we applaud them and we encourage them on their educational journeys. And special thanks to Tim Ranzetta of NextGen Personal Finance. He's been an important friend and guide to Investopedia as we marshal our forces to provide financial education and curriculum into public schools. We'll link to NextGen's curriculum as well as our own Financial Literacy Resource Center for students in the show notes, as well as all the other reports we cited on today's episode. Get those wherever you get your express on. Keep learning keep teaching, and keep encouraging young people to learn about money. You can make a huge difference in their lives and in your own. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.